Okay, hello, and welcome to the latest episode of EdTech Today. My name is Kevin Hogan. I'm glad you found us. With me today, uh, two gentlemen uh, who have been making some news recently in the EdTech space. I'm really glad I was able to uh, grab their attention for a few minutes to talk about it. Uh, Sean, Dylan, thanks for, for joining me today. Pleasure. Thanks, we're excited to be here. I guess the first question that I've been asking a lot of executives uh, during this continued bit of madness that we're all kind of enduring is, how are you able to get work done? like this, of, of something of such kind of like a major momentous thing. I, I have trouble going to the supermarket and remembering to bring my mask and just kind of get home and get through the day to day. Uh, McGraw-Hill is making acquisitions, Cadaptive is being acquired. Um, talk a little bit about your experiences doing what you've been doing for so many years, but under these circumstances. Maybe Sean, we'll, we'll start with you. Yeah, you know, it's fascinating. I joined McGraw-Hill back in November, and uh, so I have not actually met uh, many of my colleagues in person uh, yet, um, which I'm very excited to do once we can uh, uh, kind of all go back safe. You know, in some ways, it's been, um, you know, really interesting because I actually feel like I've had more access to people. Um, you know, with the, with the technologies today, I'm able to kind of find myself in, you know, 10, 15 different meetings in one day that may not have happened if we were kind of, you know, in an office building. Um, and McGraw-Hill has multiple office buildings all over the globe. So, um, you know, in some ways, I've actually found, you know, the ability to kind of get up to speed and advance a strategy um, almost more efficient because of it. Dylan, how about you? Kidaptive has done B2B SaaS for six, seven years. So we've worked with partners all around the world. We're used to being connected with people in Korea or in DC or in various other places. So that aspect of things hasn't changed. Our interpersonal interactions have changed because we used to all be in one office, the Kidaptive team. And there are, there are things that you miss like overhearing that somebody's having a conversation a couple of desks down and you kind of turn and jump in and you know those kind of spontaneous connections aren't there. Luckily, our team has enough time together that we've built up enough common ground. We're kind of uh, synced up well enough that we're sort of still able to move in the right direction, but we do miss those little happy, you know, walks and water cooler moments and eating lunch together and stuff. Right, right. And, um, you know, I need to ask another pandemic related question. I'm so tired of talking about it, but it's really kind of still front and center, unfortunately. Uh, talk a little bit about how each of your individual work has changed when it comes to education. I, I have another podcast series where I talk to, actu to, to educators and to administrators, uh, some of whom feel a little guilty, especially the more innovative ones who say, you know, the use of these remote technologies, the use of synchronous communication, the use of data to analyze what we're doing. This is something we've been advocating for for, for for 10 years. And now all the school boards had no choice but to approve it, right? Because of, of, of certain circumstances. Can you, uh, I guess I'll ask you each individually uh, and then we'll kind of get into what's going on with the merger. But Talk about your experiences uh, that way. Have you seen an acceleration or maybe a, a, a new appreciation or understanding for the work that both McGraw-Hill and I know Cadaptive have been doing for, for years now? You know, I think definitely over the last, you think about the last year, the adoption and the acceleration of technology in the classroom, I mean, it was, you had to have it. So 
um, you know, from that perspective, it is things that, you know, we've been kind of preaching to sometimes, a, a, you know, an audience that wanted to listen and other times an audience that didn't want to listen. Um, so, you know, we're excited on that front. The, you know, I think the thing that as we kind of think about it, our big question is, will, will the industry revert back to old habits and old ways of doing? Or will they take this moment and use the best pieces of it and kind of craft a new delivery model that makes the most sense for kids? Um, and that's, the, I think, the big question that's on my mind anyway. And from the adaptive side of things, we have thought about teachers and families as essential stakeholders for a really long time. And we've done work for various partners in which we've crafted insights for those stakeholders to help them understand what's going on with the learners. So what's really shifted for us is our, our thinking about how those stakeholders are participating in the learning experiences has drastically changed. Teachers, as Sean is saying, who may not have had a lot of digital interactions as sort of part and parcel of their course experience, now have just had to. So there are greatly increased levels of tech literacy, tech comfort, tech dependence, tech resentment. You know, like they, they know the space a lot more intimately, warts and all. And then parents have had no choice. We, we are homeschooling parents now. You know, if you have kids in your house and they've been learning, you know, two tables down from you or like in the next room or whatever, and they come to you and you have to problem solve and you have to understand, you've become much more intimately involved in or at least aware of what your kids are learning day to day. So that means for us, when we're shaping, when we're thinking about how to shape insights for those stakeholders, we now have a different perspective on what they'll understand, what they'll be able to sort of bring to those insights. Yeah, yeah. That's it. Bringing up parents is really interesting. I mean, I've been writing about this space for a long time. And the number of stories that I've written about advancements in education technology for schools, for students and faculty, the number of times I've spoken about parents at all has been less than five, right? I mean, they just have not been part of the equation uh, until now. Uh, and that must be another aspect, Sean, that, 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 that you have to begin considering, right? Oh, I mean, it is like front and center uh, for how we're kind of thinking about the future landscape of, of the, the ed tech space. Um, you know, I hope, it's, it's our greatest hope that, you know, as much as it has been frustrating for parents to be, you know, at home trying to work and at home, you know, in some ways homeschooling their kids with the, the support of a teacher, I hope we are able to kind of look past some of those things and see the nuggets that are going to emerge and shape the classroom of the future um, because they're there and we, we need a compelling vision for where we could actually take some of the things that, you know, teachers all across America have been so innovative in the ways that they're trying to solve getting, you know, teaching to, to their kids during the pandemic. And, and that's our greatest hope. And, and the ability to kind of bring the parents into that equation gives us a lot of new ways to think about where we could go with, with future solutions. We'll talk a little bit about uh, that in, in, within the context of the, uh, you know, adaptive acquisition. Uh, what, what were some of the, um, you know, inspirations behind it? What are the things that you were looking for that were attractive to you and for the uh, Center for Innovation? Yeah, absolutely. So a couple of things. 
we are deeply curious about how to increase efficiencies in the daily workflow of a teacher. I would now say that as a result of what we just went through, layer in the idea of how to wrap parents around the learning process in a supportive way um, that maybe technology can, can help us do things that maybe you know, a year ago we weren't able to do. So, so part of our strategy started with the, you know, part one of the strategy started with the acquisition of Cadaptive. We think that a lot of the daily workflows of a teacher um, are largely fragmented and disparate. Where they collect data, where their content lives, the tools that they use to deliver, you know, any of the type of learning moments, even just within the classroom. And we need to get a really good handle on how all of that comes together. And for us, part one of that strategy was the background that the team from Cadaptive has. Well, Dylan, maybe you could go into a little bit of the history of Cadaptive and where uh, you got some of these elements. Sure, really briefly, way back in 2011, we thought we would make our own content. We made interactive animated stories for preschoolers that had embedded games and puzzles that when you played them, they were actually continuous embedded assessments. So they were helping to figure out where the learner was, not only so that you could adapt the stories and the games and puzzles, but also so that you could help parents understand what they could do to support their learner's progress. Uh, and very quickly we realized that although everybody loved it, nobody wanted to pay for it because it was an app, an app should be free. And we didn't want to monetize by advertising to little kids or harvesting their data or anything like that. So we, we pivoted and we've been doing what I said earlier, B2B SaaS since then, which means we've taken the core technology that we've developed to gather information, direct behavioral information from learner interactions and indirect observational interaction or observational innovation from parents and teachers and tutors about learner progress and use those to inform a learner model. And then the learner model can dynamically recommend particular kinds of experiences for learners or personalized insights for the stakeholders or analytics for the developers of the learning contexts so that they can understand what's working and what isn't from a learning perspective. And we've done these kinds of partnerships with lots and lots of partners in lots and lots of contexts around the world, which has given us a chance to explore how to make meaning from many different kinds of data many different levels of quality and quantity of data in lots of different contexts for lots of different age levels from, you know, as I said, little kids, like as young as six months, those are all observational measures. The six months old, they're not doing anything on computers, but you know, teachers are observing development of infants um, all the way but up to- They might be chewing on a tablet. <laughs> exactly, that's the level of interaction you get at that point is the phone in the mouth. Um, so we are hoping to bring that experience of making meaning from various kinds of data and figuring out what kind of useful and actionable information you can give to the right stakeholders in, in language that makes sense to them, and what kind of pedagogical moves you can make for the learners to sort of get them to that next place. Yeah. I want to bring that into McGraw-Hill. Yeah. And Sean, I know uh, over the years, uh, the phrase data analytics or the use of the word data can sometimes be a dirty word in the in the education space right a lot of uh, parents i guess that was probably one of the few five stories i would write about were parents uh saying you you know don't touch my kids data uh you know what's with the data privacy um and also the when you think about it, the first 
uses of data involved pie charts, maybe some other sort of spreadsheet sort of things that were being presented to teachers who consider themselves artists and not accountants when it comes to teaching kids and that, <laughs> that, right. that, that interaction. Talk a little bit about that evolution and then maybe that acceleration now uh, of both that parental involvement as well as maybe taking the data to a, to a different level. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a couple of things that we're thinking about. So part of like, you know, we talked about our part one of our strategy was the acquisition of Cadaptive. Part two of that is for us to kind of figure out internally all of the different, you know, kind of um, data sets that we have on, on learners and, and, you know, classrooms of, of learners for, for teachers and to be able to kind of think about that and, and kind of support them in those in that learning process. But um, when it comes to the actual, you know, where is data going to go in the future? And, and, and to your point, you know, I think historically it, it could have been a, a dirty word. You know, one of the things that we've set out is a couple of key fundamental design principles from the beginning. Um, parents own the data. Transparency is going to be key and build trust from the get-go with what we're trying to do with it. Um, and I think they have been, those three have been really guiding forces for us that I do think is going to help us get to some new innovative ways of thinking about data. We've seen a lot of you know, companies in the past fail at this moment, and, and it's, it's something that we're taking very seriously to try to think about how we can you know, maybe think about new technologies that could really give parents total control of the data, allow us to kind of tap into it with permission, um, and then be able to kind of serve up you know, recommended learning moments because we've got some really good information that the parents themselves or the teacher themselves have given us. Yeah. Another obstacle um, I can recognize over the years is the way that the K-12 public school district system is set up in the United States, right? 15,000 school districts, 15,000 different methodologies and, and ways in which they perceive curriculum as well as assessment. Uh, do you see any of those things changing or improving uh, going forward, either as a result of the pandemic or, or, or not? And if so, talk a little bit about the difference between the top-down acquisition of technologies for school districts versus what I'm, what I'm hearing from both of you gentlemen is kind of a uh, more of a bottoms-up uh, look of giving agency to not only students but teachers but to, to parents. Yeah, I mean, I've got a, a handful of things to say on this, but I, I, so I do think that if we stay focused on what we're, what we're laser focused on in, in terms of curiosity is the, the daily efficiencies in, in the workflow of a teacher. We believe that if we can build things that just make teachers' lives easier when it gets to the personalized, you know, um, you know classroom, um, that's going to be a really good grounding strategy for us. And I think that's really, you know, key um, in a lot of that. The idea that, you know, we've got 15,000, just south of 15,000 school districts that are, you know, localized with a lot of different control, with a lot of different methodologies. You know, it's not always fair to compare education to other industries, but it's not unlike watching, you know, TV and where content went. You know, you had a lot of local control over people that turned on their own TV at home. And content has become much more micro, much more agency, many more choices. Um, but the information that we can get can help the experience, you know, whether you're on Netflix or Hulu or HBO Max. Um, those types of things are, I think, um, give us a way to think about how we can craft learning moments and deliver content in a much more micro way 
that gets at, you know, I think the heart of ultimately the, the learning differences in each kid and how we can help, you know, personalize that experience for the teacher. Yeah, Dylan, any thoughts on this? On this? You asked whether we thought that the recent pandemic changes might change the level of uh, fragmentation or, or variability in practices among school districts. And I, and I, I don't think that's going to be the case. I think things will continue to be done at least 15,000 different ways in the 15,000 different school districts. Yeah. And, and if we assume that that's the case, then yeah, going, going the way Sean talked about, just, just keeping front and center, how do I make this easier for this teacher in this classroom? And, and working to find use cases that would work for this teacher in this classroom and that teacher in that classroom and that teacher in that classroom, even if those classrooms are in different school districts with different sort of pedagogical practices, different institutional practices, different sort of tech stacks, different populations, all of it. I think, I think we'll be able to find stuff that will be able to support all of those different types of practice. Yeah, yeah. And to their credit, to, to, to most districts' credit, um, they, as institutions, have shown an amazing flexibility over this, this past year. I mean, to be able to make that transformation to remote learning and to be responsive to as many students and parents as they have, maybe will be an inspiration for them to, to further offer those sort of lessons, right? I mean, so many districts are talking now about having virtual academies. Uh, and so next fall, if a student doesn't want to come back at all, they don't have to. How does that extend to the, the, the products and services you see McGraw-Hill uh, providing, Sean? Well, I mean, I think, and I'm hearing that, that same thing, you know, for all the, the horror stories of, you know, virtual learning experiences that, you know, some kids and parents experience, um, you also have a handful of kids who have been given the option to, you know, come back to school full time this spring and are choosing not to for a variety of reasons, because they can get their work done in two to three hours and then have the afternoon to do some things that they're maybe passionate about or interested about um, for those kids that needed intensive intervention or for those kids that, you know, were able to accelerate past what the teacher was teaching at that moment in time. So I do think there the districts are going to be forced to have a myriad of options um, for kids that go beyond the traditional seat time um, and, the, and the daily structure. So I think that's, that's key. We have to design, I think, our, our future you know, content and product sets that are able to be deployed and delivered in a host of different environments. That may mean in the classroom, that may mean at home, or that may mean in a hybrid experience where they're in the classroom sometimes and they're at home or somewhere else sometimes. And so we have to, I think we have to have an eye on the future because I do think the future classroom will ultimately be hybrid and in a way that gives more flexibility um, to, you know, what families need and want. So that leads me to this question. Who will McGraw-Hill be selling to? Is it traditionally the superintendent who might put it in front of the school board. What you've been saying here more and more sounds like it's almost almost like a B to C the, with the, cons the consumer being the parent and the student as opposed to the B to B, which would be the, uh, the board or the district or the CTO. Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I think right now we are, you know, set up to sell, you know, into school systems as kind of a, an enterprise solution that you know, hopefully helps a handful of teachers across the district. 
Um, but it's definitely a market that we're interested in and curious about as we think about, you know, can some of our, our solutions live in a way that provides support for the homeschool market, for just parents to support their kids, you know, in the COVID learning loss or just through the summer or uh, enrichment services. If we design our, our, you know, future solutions that really give agency to kids and have a persona where kids can actually accelerate or advance through the content without a teacher or in some cases, you know, in addition to, um, it's a market that we're interested in. Yeah. And uh, Dylan, talk about, you, know, you said you started with content 10 years ago, you, you moved up to these technologies. Now you're going to be wrapped in with, uh, you know, an iconic brand in the education space. Uh, where do you see the steps going forward with uh, you know, the mission that you've had with your company? Through all the company's pivots, we've always had the same mission and vision, which is to let kids learn and have fun and empower parents and other stakeholders by creating this ecosystem of rich personalized experiences. We have designed our own content and we have worked with partners to design their content in ways that were better suited to achieving those partners' goals. Uh, I see our role, our team's role within McGraw-Hill as being similar to that latter approach where there are fantastic content creators within McGraw-Hill and we want to work with them to ensure that the, the world-class content that they develop can be surfaced in as many different contexts as possible for as many different use cases as possible. And there's just, there's some sort of structural and architectural and pedagogical choices you make when authoring the content that, that enable all of those different solutions. And it, it makes me want to expand on an earlier response. We were talking about how differently people do things in all the different districts. And it reminded me of a question my son asked me at bedtime last night. He said, why do some fruits have so many seeds on them and other fruits just have like one seed? And we talked about evolution. We talked about evolutionary pressures. We talked about how in some circumstances, there were some fruits that did well because they had one big seed and something just gobbled it and then went away and deposited that seed somewhere. But in others, it was these little guys who were just nibbling, nibbling, nibbling. And it's great if every one of them gets a seed when they get a bite of like a raspberry or a strawberry or whatever. And, and I told him that one of the most beautiful things about evolution is, is how many different solutions there are and how elegant those solutions are for those particular contexts, which differ subtly but in important ways from other contexts. And the reason 15,000 school districts do things 15 plus thousand ways is because their contexts are different and their needs are going to be ever so slightly different. We should be in a position to develop content that can be suited to all of those 15,000 different kinds of needs, those different contexts. So we want to be a part of helping to create that. Gotcha. Yeah. I guess one final question as we run out of time here. Um, one thing when I, when I read the news and I had this conversation we haven't touched upon, which is another uh, element of the, the crazy uh, COVID pandemic year that we've had, is uh, the element of assessment and how through personalized learning and the delivery of content, at the end of those conversations, there is always an assessment piece. I don't see, um, or I, I haven't read in the release or in the news, uh, an assessment element to this. Uh, Sean, can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, I assume there must be one somewhere. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, and so I would actually couch it into three things that we're kind of thinking about. Um, how you write and author content for the future, 
um, an assessment strategy around that, and then how that ultimately leads to recommendations um, in other, you know, very specific, uh, you know, domains for what content, you know, a learner might learn next. Um, so the the idea around assessment and what's happening in McGraw Hill um, is a component of this strategy. Now, where we're, exactly we're going to land, I think, is you know yet to be determined. Um, but it is absolutely on our radar and on our roadmap in terms of thinking about how assessment relates to authoring content and how we make recommendations. Well, great. Well, I know that uh, both you gentlemen are going to be very busy as you continue uh, to, to bring both of your, your talents and your products and services together. Have you two actually met in person? We have not. No. <laughs> but I feel like I've known Dylan for a long time. We're kindred spirits and, and, and I think the stars have aligned that we're pointing in a way that uh, we're pretty excited about. That's that's exceptional <laughs> that you, you'd be able to accomplish all these things uh, all from either our, our home offices or our basements or where, wherever we are. Uh, so I really I do appreciate you taking some time out to talk to me about all the work that you've been doing and I'll be sure to cover it. And um, let's meet again, hopefully maybe in person at some sort of ed tech event and we can have a, another conversation. That'd we would fun. love that and we'd love to we'd love to come back and uh, tell you a little bit about maybe a future product release in the future. How does that sound? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'll be here. Well, That's thanks great. again, gentlemen. And I appreciate it. And I appreciate everyone for watching EdTech today and specifically this episode. Please look out for other ones out on the interweb soon. I'm Kevin Hogan. Thanks.